The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If you take humanity as a whole and look at the things we fear, certain recurring themes begin to emerge. Things like spiders, the dark, the boogeyman, and even the somewhat more modern fear of clowns are all some of the things that make up our collective fears, rational or irrational as they may be. Yet in the pantheon of things that scare us, there are a few things quite so terrifying to people as isolation. Humans are, by nature, driven to cluster together in packs. We seek out the comfort of friends, of family, of our neighbors and co-workers, from our cave-dwelling ancestors who learned to hunt and gather together for warmth, all the way up to our modern-day concept of making virtual friends through social media. Because no matter how independent and self-reliant we believe we are, we also know on some instinctive level that there's strength in numbers. Time and again throughout history, isolation has been shown to have a negative effect on people. In the modern prison system, we use solitary confinement as a punishment. It's been scientifically proven that solitary confinement can cause irreversible psychological trauma in as little as 15 days. People who emerge from solitary confinement have been known to exhibit symptoms similar to schizophrenia. Sometimes they hear voices, see things that aren't there, or attempt acts of self-harm, and very often... The fear of being confined alone in a small space remains with them for a long time after. Something similar has been shown in people who spend excessive lengths of time in the wilderness or other isolated locations. It's a condition commonly known as cabin fever. People suffering from extreme cases of cabin fever have been known to exhibit all sorts of irrational behavior. Lethargy, claustrophobia, suicidal thoughts, and even murder. In 1959, one of the men stationed at a remote Soviet Antarctic base murdered one of his colleagues with an axe after losing a chess game. As a result, following the incident, the Soviets banned all their cosmonauts from playing chess, just in case. But beyond the psychological damage from loneliness, we need only look at horror movies and popular TV shows like The Walking Dead, to see the potentially deadly effects of isolation. People who are trapped and alone on The Walking Dead, for example, often fall victim to gruesome deaths, whereas the survivors are generally those who band together to fight the zombies. Because being alone means you don't have anyone to help you. If you run into trouble out in the wilderness, you're pretty much on your own. There's no police, no fire department, no emergency services to save you in the case of an emergency. Back in 1873, on a frigid winter's night, three women became trapped on a tiny island off the coast of Maine with a bloodthirsty killer. And what happened next is the stuff of nightmares. I'm Nate Hale, lost and alone in a world that doesn't understand me. 
And this is The Conspirators. About 10 miles due east from the seaport community of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, lie the Isles of Shoals. Back in 1873, of the nine islands that made up the rocky archipelago, only three were inhabited by humans. They were fishing communities by and large. The infertile soil wasn't fit for growing much of anything, leaving the cold waters of the Atlantic Ocean to become the main source of income for most people. But even in the waning years of the 19th century, the inhabitants could see the writing on the wall for their way of life. Cod fishing was on the decline, and more and more of the Norwegian immigrants who came to America looking for work began taking jobs in the coastal communities catering to tourists throughout the short summer season. In 1873, there were probably fewer than 60 people total who chose to live year-round on the Isles of Shoals. It was about a 10-mile trek between the mainland and the nearest island. A sailor worth his salt could make the journey in about two hours. That is, if the tide and weather conditions were right. If they weren't, it could take most of a day to make the crossing. All of which made it even more baffling to authorities later on why someone would steal a rowboat in the dead of night under harsh winter conditions, only to sail out to one of those islands in order to commit murder. Throughout the early part of the 19th century, Norwegian immigrants had flocked to the region hoping to make a living as fishermen. But overfishing of the region had caused the industry to all but collapse. After the Civil War, wealthy investors saw the Atlantic shoreline as a place where they could put up luxury hotels and summer vacation resorts. Practically overnight, many of the people who did live on the islands changed professions from fishermen to construction workers or service employees. But the summers were short and the winters were long bringing with it rough seas and gale winds that could reach near hurricane force. The island residents known as Shoalers would hunker down through the cold months and wait for the sun to return. During a typical winter's day, the wind would whip up fiercely, causing white-capped waves to churn violently all the way to the horizon. Lobstermen checked their empty traps with scowling faces. Fishermen scraped barnacles and repaired their boats, and spoke wistfully to one another about how much better the fishing used to be. Smutty Nose Island was one of the few inhabited islands in the cluster of landmasses off the New England coast. The island itself is only about a half mile long, and not quite as wide. It lies almost dead center along the imaginary line in between Maine and New Hampshire. As a result, there remains some contention about which state Smutty Nosed Island actually belonged to, an argument that would remain for years to come, until both sides finally threw up their imaginary hands and declared the island to be Maine's responsibility. On a granite rise on Smutty Nose Island stood a weather-beaten red house. In truth, the house wasn't much to look at, but in comparison to the run-down fishing sheds scattered along the right ledge of the island, it was practically a castle. Or at least that's how Marin Honvent thought of it. She lived in and took pride in the red duplex where she lived with her husband, John. She did her best to make the place seem alive. She decorated with bits of bright paint and paper to make the rooms more cheery. 
and filled the shelves with plants that helped keep herself busy while her husband was away at sea. Marin and John Honvent had lived on Smutty Nose Island for a few years now. They left their native Norway in 1866 for the promise of a new and better life in America. They first settled in Boston before deciding that city life wasn't for them. As soon as they could afford it, they moved to Smutty Nose Island, where they bought the Red Cottage and a fishing schooner. And although the fishing industry was down, John would soon earn enough money to send for his brother Matthew and Marin's sister Karen Christensen back in Norway. Matthew proved to be an able-bodied hand on the schooner Clarabella, but there was more work than even two men could handle. So after they'd been living on Smutty Nose for about two years, John hired a third hand, a 28-year-old Prussian immigrant named Louis Wagner. Louis was friendly enough around the Honvents, although some of the people acquainted with him noticed how he never spoke much about his past, as well as how he always seemed to be lurking about and listening to what other people were saying. Life on the island was lonely for Marin, especially when John was away at sea. For a time, her only companion was her dog, Ringe, that is, until her sister Karin arrived from Norway in 1871. Karin had already seen much tragedy of her own after losing a lover back in Norway. But Marin hoped the change of scenery and being around her sister would help brighten her spirits. Several weeks after coming to America, Karin got a job as a live-in maid with a family on Appledore Island, the largest of the Isles of Shoals. Rounding out their small circle of family newly arrived from Norway was Marin's brother Ivan Christensen and his wife, Anatha. She was a real beauty, with bright blue eyes and thick blonde hair that fell to her knees when she didn't have it braided. The five of them lived together in the duplex cottage. Louis Wagner even came to stay with the Honvents for several weeks. He wasn't paid during this time, but he was offered free room and board in exchange for his services. This arrangement went on for about five weeks before Lewis booked passage as a hand on another fishing schooner in November, leaving the Honvents and the island behind. The Honvents were happy that Lewis was finally able to find a job that paid well enough to get him back on his feet. But Lewis Wagner's luck took a turn for the worse. The schooner he took a job on, the Addison Gilbert, was wrecked in a storm. Afterwards, he was forced to work odd jobs along the Portsmouth wharves, Earning so little, he could barely afford the tiny room he rented to live in. By March 1873, Lewis was in desperate shape. His shoes and clothing were in tatters. He was starving, and he owed three weeks' rent to his landlord. On March 5, 1873, John, Matthew, and Ivan set sail on the Clarabella, leaving Karen, Anatha, and Marin behind on the island. Normally, Karen would have been staying in the hotel on Appledore, but tonight she decided to stay with her sister. The men planned to sell their catch in Portsmouth and buy more bait coming in early on the train from Boston. Their plans changed with the direction of the winds and by a chance encounter with a neighbor. The train from Boston carrying the bait was delayed, which meant the men would be forced to stay overnight on the mainland. They sent word back to Marin and the other two women via another fishing vessel owned by one of their neighbors and told him to tell them that they wouldn't be back until morning. In Portsmouth, the men ran into Louis Wagner and offered him a job to help them when the bait arrived. 
They told Lewis they wanted to get back as soon as possible, because they had been forced to leave the women behind all alone. They thought it was curious when Lewis asked them if there was any chance they'd return to Smutty Nose Island that evening, but nothing that raised any major suspicions. Besides, they really needed the man's help. But when the train shipment finally did arrive, Lewis was nowhere to be found. Around 8 o'clock that night, someone stole a dory from Pickering Wharf and rode it past the drab brick buildings along the wharf and out to sea. The waters were choppy, and the icy wind howled like the baying of wolves. The only light to be had came from the quarter moon drifting in and out of the clouds overhead. But the man was persistent. It took him five hours to row the ten mile from Portsmouth to Smutty Nose Island. The man chose to avoid the dock where the Clarabella was usually moored. Instead, he sailed around to the far side of the island and dragged the boat up onto the rocky shore. He watched the faded red cottage from the distance, waiting for the lights inside to go out. Then, after a longer wait, when he felt confident that everyone inside the house was asleep, he began making his way up the slope and away from shore. The crusty snow crunched underneath his heavy rubber boots. At around 10 p.m. that night, Karin, Anatha, and Marin had all changed into their nightgowns and went to bed. Marin helped Karin set up a makeshift bed down in the kitchen, where it was warmer than upstairs. Marin and Anatha shared an adjoining bedroom. The frost-covered windows rattled delicately in their frames against the constant driving wind. Other than that, the entire house was silent as the women slept. Then, sometime in the still of the night, the kitchen door creaked open. The intruder shut the door behind him, then jammed a piece of wood into the latch of the bedroom door behind which Marin and Anatha slept. Those noises woke the family dog Ringe, who began barking. Karin bolted upright. John, is that you? You scared me, she said. From the bedroom, Marin called out to her sister, asking if everything was all right. John scared me, Karin said. The man who entered the kitchen hoisted a wooden chair over his head and brought it smashing down on Karin's body. In the dark, she still couldn't see who it was, so she began shouting that John was killing her. Marin jumped out of bed and tried yanking open the bedroom door, but it was stuck. Karin struggled to her feet as the man kept swinging the heavy wooden chair at her. Battered and bleeding, she fell against the door, knocking the piece of wood free from the latch. This allowed Marin to open the bedroom door just in time to see a dark shape looming over her sister. The man paused long enough for Marin to rush forward and haul Karin back into the bedroom with her, bolting the door behind her. The bedroom door shuddered in the frame as the man battered against it from the other side. The tiny bolt latch surely wouldn't hold long. Marin pressed her weight up against the door, desperate to keep the man out. She shouted to Anatha to climb out the bedroom window. Anatha was petrified. She climbed tentatively outside, but she was confused and afraid and didn't know where to go. Marin screamed for her to run, only she didn't move. Anatha was frozen in place. The man must have overheard Marin's orders because he abruptly stopped trying to force his way into the bedroom and instead dashed outside after Anatha. As he ran out the door, he stopped to pick up a dull axe the Honvins kept leaning by the door to chop ice. Anatha whipped around wide-eyed as she saw the man rushing towards her and recognized him. She had time to shout the name Lewis just before the man brought the axe crashing down into her skull, 
Her body shuddered violently before slumping to the ground. The man kept swinging the axe over and over again, long after Anatha was clearly dead. From inside the bedroom, Marin could clearly see what was happening. So close she felt she could practically lean out the window and touch the man on the shoulder. After Anatha was down, the man turned and headed back for the house. Marin tried to shake her sister awake and order her to get out the window. But Karin barely stirred, and Marin believed that she was dying. The killer began battering at the bedroom door again. Marin's only hope was to climb out the bedroom window herself and leave her sister behind. She grabbed Ringe, the dog, and tossed him out the window first. Then she hoisted herself through after. The man finally smashed open the door just as she was sliding outside to the ground below. He burst into the room, swinging the axe wildly. It just missed hitting her, striking the window sill instead with enough force to snap the head of the axe off. Marin dropped to the icy ground and ran. Behind her, she could hear her sister's pitiful screams. Marin ran, panic-stricken, frantically looking for a place on the tiny island where she could hide. She grabbed the dog Ringe from the ground where he'd been trailing behind her and kept him held tightly in her arms. She was afraid that if she put him down, he'd start barking again and draw the killer to her location. She saw the hen house nearby, but quickly decided against it as a hiding place. Too obvious, she thought. And if the man caught her inside, she'd have nowhere to run. There was a vacant building close by where she briefly considered hiding in the cellar, but again she realized she'd be trapped in there if the killer found her. Instead, she ran towards the dock, hoping to escape in the killer's boat. Only there wasn't any boat. She didn't know that the killer had landed on the far side of the island. In the bedroom, the killer had finished off Karen Christensen by strangling her with a handkerchief. He left behind a trail of bloody footprints as he left the house looking for the last living witness to his crimes. Only he couldn't find her. Frustrated, the man returned to the house and dragged Anatha's body by the feet back inside the kitchen. There was something about her lifeless eyes that infuriated him. They were so accusing, so judgmental. Couldn't stand it. He found a knife and hacked away at her face until it was no longer recognizable as anything human. By the time he was done, he was exhausted and hungry. Famished. He brewed a pot of tea for himself, leaving bloodstains on the handle. Then he took out a plate and some silverware from the cupboards and helped himself to some food. He ransacked the house looking for money. When he finally left the cottage behind, he left Anatha's body next to a clock that had fallen off a mantle and frozen at the time of the struggle. It's at seven minutes past one. Marin, meanwhile, found her way to an isolated section of rock about a half mile away, on the eastern side of the island. It was a place Marin knew well, a place where she would sometimes go to think and stare out at the water. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Years later, island tourists would come to call the place Marin's Rock. Nearby was a small cave that she managed to squeeze herself in to hide. It was where Marin remained the rest of the night, barefoot and freezing in her thin night clothes. The only warmth she had was the squirming dog she kept tightly clutched to her chest. There, in that cave, she waited for four hours until the gray light of dawn crept up over the water's edge. Her feet were frostbitten and covered with tiny cuts and bruises. She had no idea what had happened to her sister, although in her heart she feared the worst. She also had no idea if the killer was still on the island somewhere waiting for her. But at least in the daylight she felt she had a chance at rescue. She made her way on foot to Malaga, a tiny island connected to the north end of Smutty Nose Island by breakwater. It was the closest she could get to Appledore Island without swimming for it. She shouted for some children she saw playing on the faraway beach to get help. Eventually, they noticed her and ran to get some adults, who rode over to save Marin. Back in Portsmouth, witnesses would say that Louis Wagner looked as if he hadn't slept a wink all night. He ate breakfast in the boarding house where he lived, then packed his bags and rushed to catch a 9 a.m. train bound for Boston. Later, when Marin told the authorities what had happened, she named the murderer as Louis Wagner. A manhunt ensued. Lewis made it all the way to Boston, where he bought new clothes and new boots and shaved his beard. But it wasn't long before police arrested him hanging around the old North End neighborhood where he was well known. By 7 p.m. that night, police had him in irons and headed back on another train to Portsmouth. Back in Portsmouth, a massive, angry mob had formed and were waiting at the train station for him, armed with rocks and torches. They pelted Lewis with a shower of stones as officers hustled him to a jail cell at the police station. Even more people were waiting at the station for him, and police had to hold them off at gunpoint to keep them from lynching Lewis Wagner right there on the spot. For a short time, there was some debate over which state was going to have jurisdiction over Lewis Wagner's case. The Isles of Shoals is divided between New Hampshire and Maine. Eventually, it was decided that Smutty Nose Island was the property of the state of Maine, and Lewis was extradited to South Berwick, Maine, for trial. Lewis Wagner's trial went on for nine days. Aside from Marin naming him as the murderer, there was also considerable circumstantial evidence against him. Police found a bloody shirt he'd left behind in the privy of the boarding house where he lived. It was discovered that $15 and some change had been stolen from the Hanvens' home, which was about the same amount of money Lewis paid for the new suit and new shoes he purchased in Boston. Also, among the few remaining coins Lewis was caught with was one of Marin's buttons. Several witnesses came forward to testify that murder was exactly the sort of action Lewis would stoop to if he was desperate enough. John and the other fishermen all testified that Lewis knew he had kept some money in the house he'd been saving for a new boat. Besides Marin, perhaps the most damaging testimony of all came from Lewis Wagner himself. He told the jury a rambling and sometimes incoherent story that he had been baiting trawls for a fishing boat the night of the murder. 
But Lewis couldn't recall the name of the boat, nor of the captain who'd hired him, nor even where the boat was docked. He said that after he'd gotten done working the boat, he went to a saloon and had a couple of beers before sleeping outside. But Wagner was unable to give the name of the saloon or its location. No witnesses were brought forward to corroborate his alibi. It took only 55 minutes of deliberation for the jury to find Louis Wagner guilty of premeditated murder. During the trial, Lewis was being held at Alfred Prison, and ever since he first set foot inside its walls, he'd been planning his escape. The night after he received his guilty verdict, Lewis set his plan into motion. He picked the lock with the sharpened end of a wooden toothbrush, then stuffed a stool and other items under his blankets to make it look like he was still asleep in his cell. At around 3 a.m., during one of the guards' regular breaks, he made his escape. But Louis Wagner's escape didn't last long. He made his way along the country roads to a farmhouse where the farmer believed the story he told him and showed him some hospitality. But a group of vigilantes managed to track him down and drag him back to Alfred Prison to meet his fate. Marin and John Honvunt never returned to live on Smutty Nose Island. They instead moved to Portsmouth, where John worked the rest of his days as a fisherman. Ivan was broken-hearted after the death of his beloved wife, Anatha. He went to work the summer after the murders as a carpenter on Appledore Island, always within sight of the island where the love of his life died tragically. He was a broken man after the murder. He never spoke to anyone unless spoken to, and never lifted his eyes to meet anyone's gaze. At the end of the summer, he took his meager savings and returned to Norway, never to be heard from again. Louis Wagner went to the gallows professing his innocence. He was hanged on March 26th, along with another inmate named John True Gordon, who had been convicted of murdering his brother's wife and child. Gordon cried and begged for mercy as the hangman threw the switch, but Lewis remained silent as he dropped. Despite his conviction and the evidence against him, there are still those to this day who believe Lewis Wagner was innocent. Some people have a difficult time believing that Lewis would have rowed for five hours on rough waters in the middle of a freezing cold night just to rob a house and murder two women. One alternate theory has been put forth that it was Marin's husband John who committed the murders. This idea may hold a tiny bit of credence because if you recall, when Karin was being beaten by the man with the chair, it was John's name she cried out. But if John did kill the women, it would still leave multiple unanswered questions like how he managed to return to the island without the other two men he was with knowing about it. And why would Marin cover for him? Not to mention the very basic question why he would murder Karin and Anatha in the first place. But if it wasn't John and it wasn't Lewis, then there's really only one other person some people claim the killer could be. There are those who claim that Marin Honvent was the real killer, since she was the only living witness who claimed to have seen Louis Wagner commit the murders. In 1876, several newspapers published an unsubstantiated story that Marin confessed to the crimes on her deathbed. Although most of the papers retracted the confession within days of its publication. In 1997, author Anita Shreve wrote a fictional account of the murders titled The Weight of Water, in which she accused Marin of being the real killer. The film version was released in 2000. After the trial, the island became a minor local tourist destination. 
many curious souls took boats over the crossing from the mainland in order to see the infamous murder house. In fact, they didn't clean any of the bloodstains off the walls, and instead, ghoulish souvenir seekers began ripping out hunks of the bloodstained plaster and wood to take home as keepsakes. When the walls were all gone, people began taking home any other part of the cottage they could get their hands on, until finally what was left of the structure stood in ruins. It burned to the ground in 1885. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I quite literally couldn't do this without you, my faithful listeners. I wanted to give a shout out to my newest Patreon supporters. Thank you to Christina, Charlene, and Heather for your support. I couldn't do this without you as well. Just a reminder, Patreon supporters can get access to all sorts of rewards like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and access to our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. Another way you can help support the show is by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts. Each of your reviews and ratings helps boost us on the Apple charts and helps spread the word about the conspirators. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our very own website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.